2: to her tell okay she's one of our favorites we lean on her for sound legal advice but she is not your lawyer so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you uh senior editor at ordinary-times.com a member of the bar in good standing she's a lawyer she's smarter than us we're gonna have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old m carpenter back on her tell how are you ma'am
1: i'm very well andrew thank you how are you
2: i'm just having a habeas kind of day how about you (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I've had better.
2: Uh, okay, so the Supreme Court came out with this ruling. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter, uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like We've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like Every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, what is this? I, was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately, and, and this one may have <laughs> put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite quite a bit over the years and you know argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And this, this makes that very difficult to, to continue.
2: Okay. What is it about this case? Because, and by the way, this was progressive lawyers. This was uh, conservative lawyers. Like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's, let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, it was a six, three ruling. <laughs> Just where do you even want to start with this? Because it's complicated. You basically have two guys that are on death row out in Arizona This is not a conviction hearing. This is a hearing about their representation. Walk us through it kind of slowly so we're not know what we're dealing with before they get to the Supreme Court. Why is this kind of a hearing important? Explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. So let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer doesn't investigate your case. Crucial facts that could show your innocence, they're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made, you're convicted, you go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the you know the appeal stage right after trial, and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And then and now you are in what they call the post-conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing maybe to a lay person because you probably think of conviction is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage. And most state courts allow you to file a, a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas, um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to to raise. Um, So you file for your post-conviction relief in state court, and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer, and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those. And, and you're, you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court, and that's called procedural default. But back in 2011, in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this, and that's the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And that makes sense. If your post-conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but, but we're not gonna let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts won't let you put any evidence on this. So what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer in trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So, but they rely. The court is relying on USC 2254e2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub: there is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, so, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if that if they mess up, the court says that's attributed to you. It's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you, um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, it's held against you even though it was your lawyer's mistake that's not a new concept but there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel so what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not ineffective counsel on constitutionally. So that's that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating to me, anyway? What what this opinion is has been so inflammatory. There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in 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 any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of. Almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, these are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases. And they are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal The criminal law, the system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with, that's that's number one. That's just inflammatory. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was, uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this. and in it, he, he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because of failing to raise an issue and we're gonna let that happen but we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to, but we have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven. And this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are, they don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is, is necessary. And, know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's, that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line. uh, It never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have Um, raise this, what is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel, and and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work. Not so much with, you know, public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of there are other attorneys that take these cases. Um, and that are not qualified to do it, and they're not they're, they mean well, but it happens. There is, unfortunately, some bad lawyering that goes on here, and, you know, you, you might face death for that. And the fact that, you know, you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer, your educated lawyer, when you may not have much education yourself, your lawyer makes a mistake and they say, well, that's your fault. You Know that, and that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So, I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that, that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry, and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion.
2: I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez. But that's fine, that's what we bring her on for. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez. Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on Her Tell right after this. tell i'm andrew donaldson uh joined by our legal expert m carpenter she's a frequent contributor to this program uh and she is the senior editor at ordinary-times.com you can catch her writing there um let's get to some basics here because this case this supreme court case is about representation how big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now you've been a prosecutor um you've done uh like all attorneys have to do you've done uh Work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work. How big a problem is this? Because when we start talking about things like bail reform, we start talking about things like pretrial confinement, we start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals. A lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation, don't they?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court. Um, the, the consequences are not so dire, the stakes are not so high, um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, Uh, There needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases, and the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and and, uh, very well versed in these cases, and they're going to do a great job. Even the best lawyer makes mistakes, okay, and so even the best lawyer in a trial could lead to a valid ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent, although that is definitely the case at times. Um, It's just there's so many little things, mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that you know listen there's all this evidence out there my lawyer didn't even bring it up and when you have, in like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those, those avenues? And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases. When you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state the judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know, and that's, that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system.
2: How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works. I know there's not enough lawyers to go around um, and especially not enough good lawyers. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know, there's the really good. And then there's the really bad. And there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad. Right. It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, Is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. There there seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming onto what we can do about any of it.
1: Right. In, in, in public defenders especially in the lower level than trial courts their their case loads are humongous and I've seen um, experienced uh, very competent public defender at least one I know of in in my area who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions, or and that was not purposeful or, inten- or intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, inexcusable, and you know he, he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that, and he should have. Um, but when you overload lawyers with cases like this, that's what's gonna happen. And when, um, you know, your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail, um, you know, that impedes their ability to contact you, it impedes your ability, you can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients, so it impacts, you know, how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare, Um, it, it definitely clogs up the system. So. I don't think I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue, and in some higher level cases, depending on the facts of the case and and what they're actually charged with. Now, do I do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where they uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail? Probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there there things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which in turn would help the clients.
2: okay, it is the loudest story in news and culture and politics. I suspect it will be this way probably for at least a month or so, if not longer. Let's go to one of our legal experts to break it down for us. He's returning to the show, one of our real good friends, Bert Lyco, attorney extraordinaire out in the Portland area. He's also a longtime OG at Ordinary-Times.com. He has one of them fancy emeritus titles, which means he does it when he wants to, and I'm very jealous of him for that. My friend, how are you today?
3: Andrew, I am uh, I am beside myself with what has happened at the Supreme Court, but very, very thrilled that you have invited me on your show to talk about
2: it. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you. Okay, when I talked about this on the show uh, yesterday, I was basically reading, you sent it to me as an email, and then we turned it into an article, because that's how we do things at Ordinary Dash Times on the fly sometimes. Um, you did a quick little write-up of it. Let's start with some nomenclature, though, because I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page, because we are dealing... We're dealing with one of the loudest cultural things of our lifetime. Uh, I put it this way on the radio this morning. This really is um, the convergence of the last 30 years of the culture wars. This is what everybody's been building for. This is what everybody's kind of been gearing up for. This This is going to be loud like something we've never seen before. But we're dealing with black and white law here. So let's get our nomenclature right. Roe v. Wade, everybody knows that that's the abortion law. What does and doesn't Roe v. Wade do? And... In addition to that, because it's going to get lumped in here, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which you you got to have them together to understand the full picture here. Just nomenclature rise real quick, just kind of overview those four so we know what we're talking about.
3: All right. Um, you can spend uh, about three weeks on this in a con law class in law school so I can get deep, deep, deep into the weeds if you like. Um, I would start uh, the, the case history uh, with... Um, I'd start it with Griswold versus Connecticut. That's a 1967, I think, case from, uh, from Connecticut, obviously, dealing with access to contraception. And that case decided that uh, individuals have a fundamental right to have access to contraception uh, based on this notion of a right to privacy. Now, you will search the Constitution of the United States in vain for the word privacy. Uh, it's not there. Griswold used uh, what's called penumbral reasoning, saying that there are certain things that exist within the scope of different enumerated constitutional rights the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And all of these enumerated rights have been interpreted to protect certain kinds of privacy. So Uh, The idea didn't originate in the Griswold case, it goes all the way back, uh, the the earliest formal discussion of it goes to a law review article in Yale Law Review by Louis Brandeis in 1890. So we're not talking about something that the Griswold court made up out a whole cloth, uh, but it was the first time it really got applied, at least in a very explosive sort of way, in that Griswold case. With me so far.
2: Yeah, I'm with you so far. And real quick, since you brought it up, there has been this all over social media today that uh, Roe v. Wade was essentially a privacy case. That's an oversimplification, even though the basis in the Griswold law was privacy. That's an oversimplification of what Roe v. Wade does as you go on to further explain it, right?
3: Right. Um, It's important to understand that that Griswold case took this idea that Louis Brandeis had about a privacy right being one of the unenumerated rights and put that into law because the Roe Court took a look at at the circumstances of that case, a direct challenge to a Texas law criminalizing abortions, and said privacy is one of the reasons why uh, we can't have a law criminalizing abortions. That's not consistent with the constitution because among other things, The Constitution protects the right to privacy. Getting an abortion is a very private sort of decision, one of the most intimate private decisions a person could make. So that is one of the foundations that is mentioned in the Roe case. The Roe case also goes directly to the Ninth Amendment and says you have a right to an abortion that you can trace just to the Ninth Amendment that says there are unenumerated rights and the ninth provides one of those. It didn't do a real good job of articulating what that right is, and this is where the Roe case has got a lot of criticism. It's a little foggy on the textual foundation for what becomes a, a limited right to an abortion so uh the second thing to understand about roe is it does not provide an unlimited right to an abortion roe creates a sort of a sliding scale as a pregnancy advances so in it it decides and there's no real good legal precedent for it uh, it just says that you have uh, a pregnancy divided into three trimesters uh, the first one-third of the pregnancy the second one-third the last one-third and as you advance through the pregnancy, the state's interest in regulating that abortion, regulating potentially up to the point of criminalizing it, uh, will, will grow. So in the first trimester, the state has a very minimal interest as compared to the individual's autonomy in deciding whether or not to have that abortion. And then by the time you get to the third trimester, the state's interest has grown powerful enough that it can override the individual's decision. And the third concept that comes out of Roe that becomes important when we get to Casey 20 years after that uh, is this idea of viability. And viability gets to be really the turning point, both in Roe and especially in cases that come later. Viability is defined as the point that a fetus can survive on its own outside the womb. The case does not say, what degree of technological assistance is necessary for the fetus to survive outside the womb and that's another reason that you could criticize the reasoning in the row case as medical technology improves over time from 1973 when rose handed down to today um, a prematurely born baby can survive a lot longer because we have better technology right now and, and can be can survive uh, more and more prematurely, I should say. So um, that's, that's the basic idea of Roe, that you have a, um, a sliding scale of the state's interests over time coming to be uh, coming to overrule an individual's interests. And there, there's a, ve- a whole theoretical framework uh, that I have, a number of other lawyers have, that uh, that we can we can go into. And that's uh, um, a real interesting rabbit hole. But that's the core ideas of Roe. There's other ideas, too, actually, but we don't need to get into them today.
2: How hard is it? Because here's kind of the we we know the cultural side of this. How hard is it, though, when you're talking about the case law and you laid out a little bit of, you know, case law built on case law. It's a it's a building thing. When you're dealing with this kind of case law, where you're also trying to deal with a medical certainty and a medical certainty that has a very uh, debatable point like viability. We've already talked about, you know, uh, we normally now uh, 20 week fetuses are viable outside the womb, these sort of things. Isn't there just an inherent problem in trying to do case law with something that even the medical folks can't really tell you a good answer on? And we're trying to give a definitive answer on. Is it too much to say that this is one of those points of law where the law is just inadequate to try to explain this and there's just always going to be a tension here, no matter what you do?
3: There there will always be tension about this, um, because this is such a morally fraught issue and people of very, very good faith and very good morality are always going to disagree about this. That will never, ever change. It has never, ever changed since thousands of years ago, when abortions were uh, first done with different kinds of uh, chemical inducements, uh, whether that was something that should be done or shouldn't uh, ancient peoples discussed and debated amongst themselves. Uh, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we will resolve as difficult an issue as this, in uh, particularly in these modern times.
2: What, um, before we get into the actual what Alito is writing on this thing, though, compare this to like and I know it's not a perfect match but like Europe there's a pretty set standard mostly across most of the developed countries in Europe um, they're usually somewhere in that 15 to 20 week range we know the Texas laws is the 15 week range which was kind of designed to go at the court. we didn't get there because this came down first is, is the week do we get lost in the weeds on the weeks and the viability part of this or is that really essential to the case law of how this is going to play out going forward.
3: After we get the Dobbs decision handed down, uh, which we can reasonably suspect is going to look a lot like that leaked opinion that, that got put out on Monday, um, viability isn't really going to matter as much at the federal level. And it's going to be more a question of political choices get, that get made on a state-by-state basis. Um, I'm sure we're going to circle back around to that. Now, some states may choose viability as a point, Uh, Some states may choose to define viability at 28 weeks, 24 weeks, 20 weeks, um, and that's going to be based on, I would like to say it would be based on an assessment of the medical resources that are available in that state, but the the practical answer is it's going to be based on uh, pretty much raw politics.
2: Bert Lyko, attorney, our good friend, a writer at Ordinary-Times.com, he's already wrote about this. Uh, We're talking about the Alito brief. The opinion uh, that some folks are calling it a leak. I don't believe in leaks. I don't think anything's ever a leak. I think this was leaked on purpose. Uh, we're going to get into the actual brief right after we take a quick break. We're going to get into what Alito wrote, what it means, what it means going forward, and uh, he's going to explain it to us like we're five because I don't understand all this stuff, and he's really, really good with this sort of things. Bert Lico continues with us on one of the loudest topics we probably will ever cover, unfortunately, as Hertel did. Uh, We're back with our friend Bert Lyko. Okay, we have some news now. Uh, You alluded to it. Chief Justice Roberts has issued a rare statement, because I don't know how else he was going to do it, but it is rare for the Chief Justice to comment on uh, cases before they come out on opinions. He says this is a legitimate brief. He says it is, uh, or I keep saying brief, it's opinion. He says it's a legitimate opinion. Uh, it is an early opinion. We all know that from the big first draft stamped on the top of it, if you actually bothered to read it at ordinary-times.com and other places like you and I did. Uh, but it's hard to imagine this is going to be very markedly different than what is going to come out in June or whenever they get out to this brief. What's the first thing that jumped out at you about this? Was it that Alito wrote it or was it how Alito wrote it?
3: Uh, the first thing that jumped out about it to me was that I was reading it at all. The last time that I'm aware of in history that an opinion has been leaked out of the Supreme Court to anyone uh, was uh, what the year would have been, I think, 1859 when it's likely the leaker was Chief Justice Roger Taney, who told President James Buchanan what the Dred Scott decision was going to be, and Buchanan went and spilled the beans to the public. Uh, talking to a newspaper saying that the Supreme Court was going to resolve the issue of slavery in the uh, federal territories very, very soon, and it would be a final resolution, and there'd be no need to worry about that for the election. Um, students of history will recall that this um, this worked out rather poorly.
2: Very poorly and very bloodily uh, by the end, of course. let Let's do nomenclature one more time, though. You're talking about a leak, a breach of trust was the terminology chief justice. This isn't like uh, Justice Kennedy had somewhat of a reputation for talking out of school, out at parties and out on the town. And he would talk about things like that's not what we're talking about here. This is an actual document from the court. This is a bigger deal than just gossip or somebody mentioning something or, or a Kennedy or somebody like that talking out of school at a party or something like this. How big a deal is this that this is one of the draft copies that was going around? The justices pass these back and forth. They go through many rounds of this. We know this. How big a deal is that? Is it the breach of trust that the chief justice called it?
3: So um, let's bookmark going back to to, to the brief being circulated, because I think that's important to understand if you're going to engage in Supreme Court criminology. But um, how big a, a breach of trust is this? Um, it is an earthquake, uh, an earth-shattering violation of Supreme Court norms. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was still alive, was uh, was famous for, among other things, saying that if someone in the media is trying to tell you that they know what the Supreme Court's going to do, you really need to uh, distrust that. Uh, and, and her phrase was uh, something like, uh, people who say they know what the court is going to do don't know what they're talking about, and people who know what the court's going to do don't talk about it. That's as strong a social norm as um, not speaking up when the minister says, is there anyone here who has any objection to this marriage? No one stands up and says, yes, I object to this marriage. You don't do that. Uh, This is as strong a social norm on Supreme Court as, um, you know, kissing your sister. You, you, You just don't do it.
2: Well, okay. One of our favorites. She is the senior editor for ordinary-times.com. She is an attorney. Uh, she is a lot of things in the writing community and people on Twitter mostly like her. Our friend, Tim Carpenter, is joining <laughs> us once again. How are you, ma'am?
1: I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, how are the HIPAA wars?
1: <laughs> That's a very angry HIPAA. Got to be careful.
2: <laughs> for those of you not paying attention, uh since she is a lawyer and does uh, healthcare related things hipaa is one of her um i don't know what you want to call it uh things of the moment she pays high attention to so if you mess it up on twitter you're likely to get a tweet about it but uh today we're going to talk a little lawyer ease you are a lawyer one of them law splainer type people what do you make of the aba talking about getting rid of the lsat now we've heard this in the news a lot lately uh, there was some debate, I thought, pretty unfairly um, during the Supreme Court nominations about uh, LSAT scores. You wrote a piece Or Ordinary Times that pretty much dispelled that. However, uh, if we're going to get rid of something, we have to discuss what its actual use is. So let's just start there with the nomenclature. What is the LSAT? What's it supposed to be? And what is it being used as that folks want it reformed?
1: The LSAT is the Law School Admissions Test, and just to be clear, what the ABA is doing is they are not, quote, getting rid of the LSAT. The LSAT is still existing. What, what it is, is there the rule um, that the ABA used to have for accredited law schools was that they were required to require an entrance exam, an LSAT or other. Um, some some used GREs, but they, what they have done is they've said that they are no longer requiring accredited law schools to require an entrance exam at all. They still can. And I suspect a lot of schools probably will continue to do so for a variety of reasons. But the LSAT is a standardized test, like a like the GRE or the MCAT, which is the medical school equivalent. And it is a um, an aptitude test to, that's designed. Whether it does it accurately or well, I don't can't speak to that. But it is designed to determine whether or not uh, one per, a person's reasoning skills, their logic skills, their um, whether they actually have a a good chance of success in law school based on how they think um, how they solve problems their comprehension things like that so it's not a test about what do you know about the law you don't know you you know theoretically know nothing about the law before you have actually gone to law school so there are no legal questions on the lsat so that's what it is and the intention of it is to as a measure a metric to help law schools accept students who they believe have a chance of success.
2: We went, now we went over this when we did the Supreme Court nomination hearings for uh, soon to be Justice uh, Jackson here shortly. Uh, Just to tee it up though, for the trivia buffs out there, how many law questions are on the LSAT?
1: Zero. There are no legal questions on the LSAT. You are not presupposed to have any legal knowledge before you sit for that exam. You have not been to law school yet. They don't expect you to know the law.
2: So, just for the people that will never have the great pleasure of taking an LSAT, uh, I'm not one of them because I actually took the thing just on a lark, just to see how I do on it. What it this isn't like a normal test. This isn't this isn't just fill in bubble fields. This isn't you know flashcards. Explain to people what is actually going on on this test because a lot of folks maybe they haven't done logic problems and things like this, just kind of given a little bit of an explainer of what the test is actually like to take.
1: Uh, it's been a um, couple of decades since I took it. So I don't recall every section. Um, I know you know, there are like any other standardized tests where you have to read a passage and answer questions about it. And, um, but my favorite part is, as you mentioned the logic puzzles and, and those are the ones where you have a list of Uh, statements such as, you know, there are five people at a party and the person in red is sitting next to Mary. Mary's not sitting next to the person in green, the person in green is eating chicken and, you know, things like that. And based on the information you're giving, you are supposed to figure out where is everybody sitting, what color are they wearing and what are they eating? It sounds funny or um, confusing, but, and a lot of people really hate those puzzles. I love them. I have an app on my phone where I do them for fun. So that's one of the one of the sections. And then, again, I think the rest is mostly uh, reading comprehension and and the ability to write clearly. And then
2: Carpenter, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that actual law school experience. Uh, We're going to loan lead that into the student loan debate that's going on. Why law school is so expensive? Is that one of those prohibitive gatekeeping things? We've been talking about it and a little bit more about the LSAT. Our talk with our lawyer friend, senior editor at ordinary-times.com, and Carpenter continues on her tell right after this. tell our good friend m carpenter one of our favorites one of the smartest people we know great writer senior editor at ordinary-times.com make sure you go check out all her work she usually does wednesday ritz but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job so that's been a little spotty but she did do one last week thank you very much for showing up to work appreciate that (laughs) um that's a joke i'm kidding uh let's talk about that law school experience for just a second law school has always been prohibitive it's always been tough to get into it's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point, though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into and too expensive?
1: Um, too expensive. Yes, I think is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs or no, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt for my four years of undergrad, uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell grants. Um, my first year's debt from law school was 16,000 and I know it's probably a lot more than that now, obviously in <laughs> 20 years that's gone up. Um, And I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about thirty thousand dollars a year um, so it's not the same experience for everyone so uh yeah i think the cost is is a bit expensive so, and depending on what you plan to do with your law degree and if you want to be a public defender which i've said on here before my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer if you want to make a your career in public defense You're you're never going to make those huge salaries and and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six figure incomes. Um, As far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions. I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes that first year that your are 1L year is notoriously difficult and and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. Uh, yes, it's a different, it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, Takes some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your your intelligence without actually studying a lot. So a lot of people don't make it. Don't come back at the end of your first year, your second year. A lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone. Um, unfortunately, that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back. So it, it's um, it's a hard balance.
2: See, this is the thing people talk about, Lawyers talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. This is the same problem every other career field is currently having, where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job but the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs. Right. So the, there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, Hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt law school. It seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing in it.
1: I think so. Uh, Yeah, and I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a a huge job. There is, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and and a lot of uh, ways in which, you know, your loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. so there's a lot of to, to, of considerations there um, you know a lot of lawyers when they hear people talk about you know they're, they they want to go to law school you always hear oh don't do it don't do it and, and they try to talk you out of it and say you know do something else I would never do that um, I love I love being a lawyer I love going to law school I think it's a it is a noble profession I don't care what you say Andrew um, <laughs> i'm glad you Always do me.
2: it so i can lean on you and i don't have to do it so yes you, i'll agree with you
1: you make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense is why i say that um, but i think it's an, it's a good profession it's a noble profession everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and and they actually get help from one so i think it's um i don't i don't want to dissuade people from going to law school i don't want to encourage people to take on um dollars worth of debt for their, their legal education I certainly did not, Uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools so you know it helped to help them get that high paying job and and, and it might work out for them, but you can go to a um, a school perfectly. Perfectly good law school like I did WVU. It's not uh, Harvard. It's not Yale. But I'm doing just fine. And I know you know I have classmates who have who went on to firms and and are doing very well. So I think that you know you don't have to go into six figure or, or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it. Just you, you know adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case, certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, Do I wish that I had less debt? Yes, I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it At the time, a lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year, you are not allowed to work outside of uh, perhaps a work study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that that go into it. And obviously um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not.
2: Daniel DiMartino join us. OK, we always want to have a broad perspective on our program. It's something our audience works really hard on. Give me that perspective. You come to this country, you come from Venezuela, you come to America. What did you expect and what did you actually find that maybe surprised you a little bit? Just put people in your mindset as you first came to America to study how different it was and what really struck you about it when you got here.
4: Well, look, the, the biggest difference that is very quickly noticed is uh, security and safety. Uh, Venezuela is and was a very dangerous country. Uh, it, you know Caracas has one of the highest murder rates in the world. kidnapping is very common robbery is the order of the day um, and, and so being able to walk in the street by myself um, in Indianapolis where I lived was a very big change in my quality of life for the better um, you know, I, I didn't have normal teenage years, right? I couldn't go to parties at any time. You know, we started hosting parties in the day, staying at friends' homes um, be, because things were very different. Um, so that that was a big change. You know, the weather was a big change, uh, you know, seeing snow and all that.
2: You're not saying Indianapolis is a little different weather-wise than South Carolina. <laughs>
4: Yes, I, I, you know, I did my first annual in the snow. It wasn't the first time I saw snow. I saw snow in some mountains in Venezuela when I was a baby. But certainly the first time I remember, um, and and it was there. It was very cool. I enjoyed it very much. But I also saw, uh, you know, a lot of things that I didn't see in Venezuela. Uh, some of them were that the population in Venezuela by that time had already become very anti-regime, very anti-socialist very much that they wanted more economic freedom. And here I saw the opposite. I saw a lot of young people who wanted the government to, to control everything, who didn't know anything about what was going in the rest of the world, like Venezuela and other places, which I did because you know I lived in Venezuela and because I, I had an interest in politics because I, I, I was living in a political experiment. Um, but then I, I you know culture is different. Um, I really enjoyed being in America. It's a totally different experience in Venezuela. There was a lot of, um, because of the whole security situation, you couldn't even tell your friends what your parents did for a living because you were afraid that some kidnapper would end up knowing. Um, so, so you just felt more at ease in the United States. Um, I, I love it, Andrew. I, you know, This is a very special country. The people are very special. I think that people exaggerate. Uh, or political differences very much, and they do it because they don't know what real political differences are, which is what happened in Venezuela and countries where there has even been genocide, where people killed each other for politics. That, that's not, I don't think that's going to happen here, and I hope it doesn't get that bad. Um, yeah. yeah.
2: Talk about real quick, too, um, culturally, when you come over here, we talk about it in the abstract that, you know, America is a big, pluralistic, inclusive society. It's very, very diverse. We say that as a buzzword, but I always, when I talk to people who come here from a foreign country, I remember my German exchange buddies, when they came over, here. they were just like, wow, there's so many different people here. Talk about the difference in that, especially, you know, you grew up middle of the country. You're now, you know, kind of around DC more. You've been around the country doing media stuff. Now, the culture of America, that diversity, that plurality, talk about how unique that really is when you come here from another country.
4: Well, look, I never felt discriminated in Venezuela, which I know many, sorry, in in the United States, I never felt discriminated in this country because um, while I saw some Venezuelan friends who immigrated to other parts of Latin America and they faced like explicit discrimination in the street from other people. And based on their accent, which was the only thing that made people know whether you were Venezuelan, um, because there's no single Venezuelan look um, or ethnicity. So, so that, that was very shocking to, to see that happening there, not, not in the United States, right? Which has a different language, which is not as culturally close to Venezuela as the rest of Latin America. And so I, I thought that in the United States, I didn't have any of those problems. Um, you know, I had friends from everywhere, from Indi, you know, Indian people, uh, you know, a regular American natives from Indiana. Uh, from different religions, Jews, Christians, uh, you know, atheists and, and that, that, that was very cool. You know, I was able to learn from, from very many different people. Um, I, I will say though, that the, the whole um, racial situation in this country and um, controversies, you know, strife or, or however you want to call it. It's something that was new to me because it's not something that, that I experienced in Venezuela. Um, You know, seeing sometimes people in the college cafeteria sit down only with like other black people or with other white people, that was very strange, um, because that was not what happened in in Caracas, at least, Um, you know, people didn't really care at all, and it was not even part of the conversation, uh, ethnicity, uh, which here it is. And I think that that's the only negative thing that that I thought culturally America had, like, we really need to get over the whole uh, ethnicity of 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 the population
2: issue. Yeah, great thing. Let's just get into it, because I'm so excited about it, called the Dissident Project. Now we know what dissident is. Let's do nomenclature again, so we don't lose folks. That's a nice, big, fat word. Dissident, uh, people are gonna start thinking Red Dawn and Wolverines and such. That's not what we're talking about here. Dissident Project, my friend, what do you got in mind with it and what are you gonna do with it?
4: Yeah, the Dissident Project is uh, this uh, venture of Young Voices that I had the idea of. And uh, we got together a group of eight people, including myself, from socialist countries in America, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Hong Kong, which was recently taken over by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, And we're gonna travel to high schools all over the United States to tell our stories and connect it to what's happening here in America and why people need to choose freedom and not be government to solve their problems. Uh, Taking as a lesson what happened in in our countries of origin. Why is that important? Because recently, Florida passed a law that requires uh, public high schools to teach about communism, totalitarian systems. And uh, even more recently, it requires 45 minutes of instruction, including firsthand experience from people who live in those places to the students once a year. That means that there are over 2000 high schools in the state of Florida who will need to, to teach about this, and what a better resource than the listening project to bring speakers to our school, which we have thanks to a group of donors to Young Voices. Uh, we're gonna travel there uh, for free. You know, they're, they're gonna organize the trips and we're volunteering um, our time to, to, to serve the schools and to talk to the students, which is something that I've loved doing already and I've done before, but now we're gonna do it with more people.
2: Now, how are we going to tailor something like this? Because I imagine, let's take Florida, for example, if you're in the Miami area, obviously huge Cuban expat population, very vocal, very politically active down there. Uh, That would be preaching to the choir to those folks because they know it, they've lived it, they believe it strongly. I would submit you'd probably deal with that one a little differently than let's talk Indianapolis again. If you go back to Indiana where people, it's more of an abject thing, you're probably going to address them differently. How do you tailor that to different audiences? Because, again, big plural, diverse uh, nation, people have different experiences with government. Small town's going to have a different experience with government than a big city is. Isn't this something that you're going to be able to tailor a little bit differently wherever you take it between the eight of you?
4: course and, and we're going to tailor it and especially it has to be tailored towards a high school student audience right which is not the same as an adult audience so audience that it's much more difficult to to gain their attention from but it's also an audience that is much more open to learning right because they don't have as many preconceived political beliefs they they haven't made up their mind about most issues and unlike going to colleges or or adult events which are a self-selected audience of people who already agrees with the speaker, usually. In high schools, the teachers send the students regardless of their political beliefs. So we actually have an impact on persuasion and and on telling people who don't know and maybe are not that interested in the issue and catch their attention and tell them some things. So how we start always is with our story of whoever whoever the speaker is, uh, of a roster of this sort project and from the story, they tell, you know, they connected to to what happens in America. They warn people about the, the politicians, the, the the people here who actually support socialist regimes and who who actually support socialist policies for this country, such that people are not deceived of what that means, right? The the, the people who are who claim to be socialists here and say that they just want free healthcare, that's not really what they want. They don't really want what the Nordic countries have. They they actually they want actual Venezuelan, Cuban, you know, Chinese socialist policies. And, and that's what we need to warn students about, from people who actually lived it and can tell you what were the consequences in our daily lives. Like, I didn't have electricity many days per week, and water sometimes for several weeks straight after the government took over water and made it free because there was no money to maintain the equipment. And then when the, the, the things that they did have money for, which is the money they printed created inflation, which reduced my purchasing power, which we're already seeing in the United States now. They gave so many checks for free to people and now we have nearly 9% inflation. So these things happen. Now it's happening at a much smaller scale here. But if have no doubt, if they were to continue giving checks to people, we would easily have 20, 30% inflation.
2: Ah, welcome back to to Tell. Okay, something a little different. Let's talk movies. When we want to talk movies, we go to this man because he's great at it. He knows things about it. I don't because I'm not that big a movie guy, so I lean on him. Uh, Luis Mendez, our good friend. He has an excellent sub stack. He writes. He also writes at ordinary-times.com occasionally. How are you, my friend? How's things down in sunny South Florida?
5: Well, it's, first of all, it's super hot down here, but uh, other than that, I'm very happy that the movie season for 2022 has actually started off really good with, to my pleasant surprise because I was actually a little scared that last year had been maybe a little too top heavy, but I think it's been a pretty solid start to the year for movies.
2: See, we just did Memorial Day weekend. Top Gun came out, massive movie, huge hit, going to be a monster film. I think it did 150-ish over the weekend, 300 worldwide, something like, just, you know, traditional summer blockbuster movie number. It's Remind people, because COVID, we kind of forgot, this used to be what Memorial Day weekend about the movies was about. You had a big tentpole, top-of-the-line movie on Memorial Day weekend for five or six days, and that was like usually one of the movies of the year. That used to be the way COVID hit. Are we back to it, or is this an aberration, do you think?
5: I mean, I, I don't want to say it's an aberration. Uh, I feel like we're sort of back to normal to an extent. Um, I, I We've been seeing a trend, and this has been going on even before COVID, and I think maybe COVID kind of accelerated it, where people are being much more limited in what movies they're going to go see. And a lot of that is because, understandably, um, folks are notice that the theatrical window isn't as long as it used to be. After a movie comes out in theaters these days, 90 days or so, it's already available on streaming, or it's already showing up at their store on DVD. So I think people are being more limited in what movies actually go to see in the theater. Uh, But there's no doubt about it that COVID hurt the box office uh, and accelerated these trends. What I'm very happy to see Top Gun doing this is, look, as much as I love and have a lot of fun with the MCU movies, it is really nice to see a non-MCU movie getting this kind of box office, especially a good movie like this. Uh, I'm very happy for Top Gun and Paramount, especially because they've been having some rough times the last couple of years. Uh, I think they're having a really good 2022 between this, The Lost City, the Sonic movie. They've got a major awards contender coming out at the end of the year. Uh, I I think that if anything, this shows that if you can make a good enough movie with enough word of mouth, you can compete or do respectable, even against the big superhero movies that everybody's going out to see. And we're even seeing this with smaller movies because there's a great movie that we recommend people check out uh, called Everything Everywhere All At Once that came out, small movie, indie film. Um, This movie, Movie's legs have been uh, history-making. It's not, you know, it's not making ridiculous money, but the legs have been there because of the great word of mouth. And I hope we get to see a little bit of that in a day and age where everybody kind of just shows up for the superhero movies.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting you bring it up that way because one of the reasons I like following you and your writing is you understand not you don't just review the films; you understand the business side of this. Talk about this for a minute, because I don't remember, at least in my lifetime, a movie like Top Gun. And maybe it's because, you know, Tom Cruise has the stroke to make these things work. Maybe it's because the brand is so big and so nostalgic. Do you remember any other time where a studio held a movie for over two years, a big movie when they went through some struggling years on top of it? Would have You know, there's reports out there about how much Apple and Netflix and these other companies were offering. Uh, for Top Gun, if they took it to streaming, do you remember any kind of a comparison to this, where they held a movie this long and it was still this big and this successful?
5: This long, but I know that this is not the first movie that had it was held back because of the pandemic. That there were rumors of streaming services getting involved in getting it. I mean, I think that the latest James Bond there was talk about Amazon uh, streaming it. Godzilla versus Kong there was talk about Netflix buying that from Legendary. Uh, I know that the Dune. Uh, there have been some talks about that, which led to the, to the director kind of speaking out. But yeah, this movie has been held back from us for two years. Now. I mean, I remember watching Traders for this back in 2020, uh, but they have been very careful to say, we're going to release this when the crowds are back so they can see it on the big screen. And it's paid off big time for them because not only is the movie a critical success, but uh, It's a financial success, and I actually think, spoiler alert for the next time I write up my Best Picture Oscar projections, I think it's a long shot, but not impossible um, contender to be that populist Best Picture nominee. That's how well I think this movie has been
2: received. They're definitely going to get some technical awards, aren't they? Because I, and I'll I'll confess, and I'm somewhat known as not being a huge movie goer. I don't like the, the climate of a theater, but I went to this, and I went to it in IMAX, And I was telling you before we started, something like IMAX, when you have a live shot movie, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of CGI in this film. You could really tell the difference in the way this movie was shot. This was quite an epic achievement in movie making. I know a lot of it's technology from the first one 35 years ago where they can put cameras in the cockpits and things like this. It's just spectacular just watching it visually. This was, aside from the plot and the nostalgia and Tom Cruise and the soundtrack, that movie visually is just one of the best things to just sit and stare at for two hours of anything I've ever seen on a big screen.
5: Oh, yeah. And, and and I think it's one of the things that say, like a Christopher Nolan has been generally good at is that they're in this day and age of CGI to actually use some technical, uh, real life stuff, uh which you just can't beat when you're trying compared to trying to recreate something. Uh, I gotta think that sound wise, at least it's gets a nomination, at least sound. Uh, you know, worst, worst case scenario. But I think it has the ability to perhaps do re, uh, even go beyond that. I mean, they they played this movie at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, so th- it's definitely got its uh, eyes on everybody in the industry and regular moviegoers.
2: Yeah, he won't get it, but it'd be I, I wouldn't mind seeing Miles Teller getting some kind of a nod on one of the lower level awards for something because I thought he was great in that film.
5: Oh, yeah, I agree. But unfortunately, when it comes to acting awards, a lot of it's very hard for genre films to break through. If a genre film breaks through big it'll usually just be based on the story and the movie itself, Uh, we don't get unfortunately, we don't get those Heath Ledgers, Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids sort of things. They're very rare.
2: Yeah. But I I thought that was a an eye popping moment for Teller, who's been really good for a while now. Yeah. But but man, you you take Anthony Edwards is a well-known actor and that role is iconic everybody knows who goose is if you just say that that's all you got to say and everybody knows it and man he killed it that's not that's not easy for an actor to carry that kind of weight on a new film and he transformed himself and i thought it was pretty impressive myself and i'm a fan so i'm biased here but that if that doesn't work that movie don't work and he carried it
5: yeah and and i even said in my written review that he did so well that i actually almost I actually looked up just to make sure that Miles Teller was not uh, Anthony Edwards' son, because he, he he was that he just was that well in the role, and it's nice to see Miles Teller finally because he's he's a great actor, like you said. But unfortunately, uh, some of his projects of late haven't been great. So I'm happy to see him in something good. I think the last thing I saw him in something really really great was maybe Whiplash from a couple years back. Um, and uh, by the way, and, and uh, this isn't really a spoiler because they, they show it in the trailer, but it, it is nice to see Val Kilmer again, especially with the troubles that he's been dealing with of late. And I think that really helped to come full circle into that relationship between Maverick and Iceman.
2: Yeah, and, not, and we're not spoiling anything. Everybody knows he has throat cancer. Uh, this will probably be his last film role for all practical purposes. How good of an actor do you have to be to act after you no longer have the ability to speak? And he conveyed stuff with his facial movements and his. his I thought he he wasn't just there for filler. He did a performance, and it was, man, there wasn't a dry eye in that theater I was in when that happened. Like as soon as they knew, like, oh, this is the this is the Val Kilmer scene. Like you could feel it in the theater. Like it was one of those visceral moments that you only get in the theater. And I know I bash theaters, but this was one where everybody went, oh God, this is where Val is and you could feel it out of the audience. And it was emotional. It was perfectly well done. There was just a little hint of comedy to take the edge off it. I, that's as good as seen from two real, real pros as you'll ever see, I think.
5: Oh yeah, and, and it is one of those moments where I think it, it's a, able to create that audience, uh, re, uh, that audience participation moment in the theater that if, most, if audiences just kept quiet and had more of those, that people would understand the point of having a good time at the movies um and i will say that if if any folks out there want to know more about val kilmer the stuff he's going through they're on amazon prime there's a great documentary that came out last year called val and uh it having seen that documentary before seeing this it only really made me even more appreciate more uh that they were able to get him in this movie
2: yeah i was it you could hear a pin drop and i was watching it in imax which is as loud as it gets and there's I don't know, four or 500 people in there. This is a big, this is way bigger than a normal movie theater. You could hear a pin drop during that scene. Like it was, it was a special moment. By the way, Miles Taylor, um, free plug here, only the brave. Great movie. Didn't do great at the box office. Josh Brolin's in it. The firefighter movie, those are the smoke jumpers that killed out in New Mexico. Uh, I thought he was great in that, that he doesn't get oh, a Oh, you know, for.
5: hey, you're right. I, I almost kind of forgot about that movie. I think I remembered that film coming out a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, and
2: he he's the main character for all intents and purposes. He really carries it and does a great job in a really, really hard role, very emotional role. But that's a great movie that, for whatever reason, it's just one of those movies that didn't do that well. I know it's a heavy subject matter. Maybe that was part of it. But Josh Brolin's in it. It's a great cast. encourage people to go check that one out.
3: The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early
0: so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
2: Back to Tell, talking environmental and conservation, and some policy stuff, and some practical examples of how the market isn't just the big bad part of environmentalists. There's actually good stuff going on. We like to highlight good stuff. Cat Dwyer joining us. Okay, we talked fish and water. Uh, let's get on dry land for a minute. Sustaining wildlife habitat. And you used an interesting uh, example here that I've kind of been following for a few years because I find it fascinating. Uh, elk occupancy agreements. So let's talk a little wildlife habitat for a minute.
6: Yeah, um, so the, the group I work with, PERC, um, partnered with another conservation group uh, in Montana called the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Um, and the two of us worked with a, uh, a private ranching family in a beautiful spot in Montana called the Paradise Valley. Um, and we worked with them to conserve nearly 500 acres of their ranching operation um, to be designated uh, Elk Winter Range. Um, So to provide a little bit of context around this, um, basically the private lands in a place like Paradise Valley provide a really critical service of providing habitat for a whole host of species, one of them being uh, elk, which is a a really important keystone species um, of what is known as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, which is one of the, if not the largest, intact ecosystems in North America. so they provide this habitat, but doing so comes at a cost to landowners. Elk, you know, have to, their cattle have to compete with forage with elk, uh, elk knock down fences, and they also potentially transfer um, a disease called brucellosis, which causes cattle to abort their young. Um, so providing this habitat comes at a real cost, um, and many of these ranchers are, are truly just like barely hanging on, um, and at the same time that they're dealing with this cost, there's there's really just sort of mounting uh, urban development pressure. Um, all of these damn Californians keep moving <laughs> here to Montana, um, and uh, they uh, so there's there's just a huge pressure to to develop a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and if that happens, then these large private working lands are going to be subdivided into ranchettes and into you know strip malls. Um, and we will lose that wildlife habitat completely. So HERC and we're trying to find a way to conserve this habitat, conserve these migration corridors, um, and while at the same time recognizing the really valuable critical role that private lands play um, in in providing habitat. Um, So, you know, this elk occupancy agreement is essentially a shorter term habitat lease. And it's an alternative to a more onerous model that the government puts forth, which are conservation easements. Um, You know, many landowners are willing and and able to manage their land for conservation and to provide habitat. Um, But the conservation easements that the government offers require conservation in perpetuity. Um, So that comes with a lot of strings and not a lot of landowners are are willing always to to go go with that agreement. so having other tools like an elk occupancy agreement or other similar shorter habitat leases uh, offers just more opportunity to help conserve, to conserve habitat um, and make sure that these working lands continue working and that elk have, um, you know, these migration corridors open.
2: Yeah, we've talked about those easements with our friend Gabby Hoffman when she talks conservation with us. And the problem with that is, like you mentioned, that's that's kind of a one shot deal, because once you do it, it's almost you talked about an act of Congress. This literally would take an act of Congress to get those easements changed back over. Um, But we need to mention here, too, historically, this is a new twist on a very old problem, settling the West. Of course, we know the extremes of them almost wiping out the buffalo as an invasive species, quote unquote, for all the cattle guys and the railroads. Um, this goes back again. We keep hearing it over and over again. Proper land usage, property rights. This is some very fundamental stuff to Americans that just keeps popping up. This just has kind of an environmental or a climate-based overtone to it, doesn't
6: it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think something, you know, sort of our theme here of of things that are overlooked within the environmental space, uh, private lands are often overlooked. um, And, private landowners have, you know, over centuries learned how to properly manage their land, right, um, and they're really our partners in conservation, um, and like I said, the reality in a place like Paradise Valley, and this is an issue that's happening all across the West, it's it's really a choice between urban development or keeping these private lands working, which keeping them working means these are large open landscapes, they provide habitat, they also provide, you know, Food, <laughs> which is critically important, um, so there's a lot of value there. Uh, and a group like Perk, like we just don't, we don't view them as our enemy. We view them as our partners in conservation.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's um, social justice, education, anything. A lot of this stuff starts with a breakdown when government and the private sector don't see each other as partners and start becoming adversarial. It's kind of a universal theme, and it applies here as well to especially land use out west, where it's a real issue. It's been an issue from the beginning. I figured it'll be an issue for a long time to go. Okay, let's talk some trees. Problem with trees are I I just had to trim some off my property. Is a tree close to your house is a bomb waiting to go off out west. They're fuel for wildfires it, the perception is wildfires are getting worse and worse. There's also data saying that they're getting worse and worse. You brought it up that there's some market stuff trying to address this and not just the usual, uh, government programs, because frankly, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, forest management is one of those things nobody wants to talk about until something's on fire and then nobody wants to talk about it afterwards, but it's vitally important, isn't it?
6: Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so to provide a little context on, on what is often described as the wildfire crisis, Um, Wildfires are getting larger and hotter, um, in large part as a result of over a century of fire suppression policy from the Forest Service. Um, Basically, that that policy of putting out all fires as quickly as possible disrupted natural fire cycles. I think it's worth noting that wildfire is a really important part of a forest ecosystem. Um, It has regenerative benefits. Um, And so our suppression policies disrupted natural fire cycles um, and it led to a buildup of fuel sources in our forests um, which means there's more fuel for a wildfire to consume therefore the fires burn hotter um, and longer. Um, Also the wildfire season is sort of um, expanding um, especially as we see drought conditions throughout the West. So fires are starting earlier and they're lasting longer into the fall. Um, So this, this problem has been growing. Um, and the Forest Service has identified uh, 80 million acres in need of restoration, that's their backlog right now. 63 million of that 80 million um, are have been identified um, at a severe risk of catastrophic wildfire. So that's a huge backlog. And at the current pace and scale, the Forest Service, it will take decades, multiple decades to address the full backlog and of course, over that course of time, the backlog is going to continue to grow. So it's really, it's a huge problem that it's it's gonna take a lot of effort to really get our hands around and get ahead of it. Um, And thankfully the private sector, some really interesting innovative financial tools have emerged um, that are helping increase the pace and scale of that restoration. Uh, One group that's doing this is called uh, Blue Forest. um, And they in partnership with the World Resources Institute pioneered what's called the forest resilience bond. And it's a simple model, but it's brilliant. It basically brings stakeholders together to fund this kind of work. So uh, they they pool money from uh, like an impact investor or an insurance company to put the money up front for the bond to get the restoration work done. And then stakeholders who would benefit from forest restoration, like a you know water utility in a particular municipality, um, they agree to pay back the bond at a reasonable rate of return once the restoration is complete. Um, So it's a really cool model to just get capital on the ground to increase the pace and scale.
2: talk about a really tough issue January 6th everybody gets heated about it everybody's got opinions we're talking to our good friend Michael Siegel about it all right buddy you at ordinary times.com you waded into the deep end of this thing um I'm just gonna let you set it up because I don't want to put words in your mouth here because it's such a touchy issue for a lot of people um we talk about the deaths surrounding it not directly the one uh poor individual had a stroke did it cause because I know people debate you know who actually got hurt Death counts is the one death that is inarguably connected to January 6th is Ashley Babbitt. Again, I'm just going to let you set it up, but you wrote about it. We've all seen this, this whole, here's the thing with Ashley Babbitt with me, just to set this up. The entire thing's on video pretty much from the moment she went into the building to the moment that she was shot. We've got everything she did on video. You can watch almost all, but I think about three and a half minutes of her time in the Capitol is on video. It's a tough spot because we've all watched it. You know, if, if the person that shot her, sir, waits 30 seconds, that tact team is there and that situation is probably diffused and that doesn't happen. He didn't have that kind of hindsight that we have. She was going through the speaker's lobby and for folks that don't know this, the speaker's lobby, members of Congress can't just walk in there. This is a restricted area on a normal day, let alone on a day like this where they're trying to evacuate Congress members. Like you, you can't just walk in there. There's a door there for a reason, okay? Um, but your take on Ashley Babbitt and you dealt with who has responsibility for Ashley Babbitt.
0: Yeah. What, what actually motivated this was every time the January 6th committee comes up, um, Ashley Babbitt starts trending on Twitter with people asking for justice for her. And then what actually made me right was seeing people's responses that were like, well, she deserved what she got. And my feeling was, no, she didn't. You know, no one I don't think anyone deserves to be shot. There may be circumstances where someone has to be shot, but no one deserves to die. But, you know, the situation was that you had the Speaker's Lobby, you had a barricade, you had three police officers there with a much larger crowd trying to break in. And she tried to crawl in through a window and was shot and killed. And the investigation by not one but two agencies, the D.C. police and I believe the Secret Service concluded that the uh, shooting was justified. And a lot of people are going around saying you know, she was executed, that she was you know, trying to stop the rioting or whatever, and, and these aren't, aren't really true. But I actually, I feel some sympathy for her. I feel bad for her family. I mean, she, you know, this was a woman who should not be dead, but I don't blame the police for what happened. And usually I'm very skeptical of shootings, but in this case, I, I think that the uh, analysis, I mean, we've all seen the videotape. I think the analysis was correct. And what I talked about was, you know, if you want to affix blame for what happened, I think it goes to Donald Trump and his supporters for the stop the steal thing. You know, they, what's one of the things that's coming out of the January 6th committee was everyone around Donald Trump was telling him you lost the election. Bill Barr told him that. His children told him that. His son-in-law told him that. Everyone around him was telling that. And he just refused to believe them or just didn't want to didn't care um, the people he was listening to were people like Rudy Giuliani who was telling him that he that he won and so you know he continued to he lied effectively continued to feed that lie continued to rile up his supporters saying your democracy is being stolen your country is being stolen they gathered them on January 6 remember January 6 was picked because that was the day the vote was going to be certified and the reason they had that rally was because this crackpot theory emerged that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And our friend Bert Lyko wrote about this in Ordinary Times that this was just nonsense. There was no legal way that Mike Pence could overturn the election. And even Congress could at most send those certifications back to the states to confirm them. They couldn't just override them. And so the people were gathered there on a false premise. They were then riled up, you know, they were turned loose and you know the, the main violence was started by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, but those were also stimulated. One Another thing that's come out of the January 6th committee was when Donald Trump at the debate was asked to denounce the Proud Boys and told them to stand by, that they used that as a recruiting tool. That was one of the things that they used to build up their numbers to the point where they could breach the Capitol. And so, you know, Ashley Babbitt was a grown woman, she had agency, she made her decisions, but I think you have to put some responsibility on the people who gathered a mob, set them loose, knowing that violence might happen, that someone might get killed. You know, they didn't specifically single out her, but they set the mob loose in a circumstance that might result in people dying. And you know, we, there's a very specific legal definitions of who's responsible, incitement, and all those. Again, our lawyer friends write about that. So there's not a legal responsibility. But there is, I think, a moral responsibility for what happened. You know, there's a line in the Bible I'm fond of quoting that not, uh, that you shall not put a stumbling block in front of the blind, which is interpreted by most ages to mean don't put people in positions where they're tempted to do bad things. You know, don't provoke people to do bad things. And I think in this case, with two months of lies and the rally and everything else that was going on, that created a situation where someone could die. And so if you wanna put responsibility on people, I think that's where at least some of the responsibility goes, not a legal responsibility, but a moral responsibility.
2: John Miller talking a little baseball. Okay. So we know what the problem is. We know that the money's an issue. What's some of the things we can do about it. My first question about this though, is if it's a cultural problem, like you said, MLB's throwing plenty of money at little league baseball. That's not the issue. How do you change a cultural problem? You have to have a cultural solution, don't you?
7: Yeah. And that means the people at the grassroots uh, having ideas. Um, So as a follow-up to my first piece, I wrote about some of those ideas, and um, you know, basically, if you think about uh, you know, youth baseball, youth baseball as its own sport, what you need is for there to be balls in play. You cannot have youth baseball become a contest of whether the pitcher can throw a strike or not. So, you need to change the rules so that you have that ball in play at least every thirty seconds. So, one thing I like to do is play one strike and you're out or two strikes and you're out where I'm pitching or a machine is pitching and you're getting a strike and the ball's in play so that's one way um coach, coach is catching to kind of make the pitchers more comfortable and have them uh you know get rid of pass balls and, and sort of accelerate the tempo um playing uh with there's a guy in California named David Klein who has a game called speedball which is three teams uh show up every game uh one team hits one team plays the infield one team plays the outfield, and you rotate so you get more at bats with only five players, and you have different rules to accelerate the game, uh, smaller balls to make it easier to throw strikes. Um, five on five with three bases. You know, people think that baseball is kind of etched in stone and you're handed down in the Constitution, but it's actually a very malleable game, and there are lots of rule changes in the 19th century. And I think you just have to change the rules until it is exciting again. And if, if it's not, then why why would a kid want to play if it's, if it's just standing there? Uh, I don't know if you know, know the, the Peter, Paul, Mary song, right field. They sing uh, uh, playing right field can be lonely and dull. Little leagues never have lefties who pull. And so it's a song about a kid just standing there and all of a sudden the ball comes out to him and he's just shocked. So, yeah, baseball should not be that that picnic. That <laughs> should be fun and and rhythmic and have uh, you know good pace to it. And so you, need, you can change the rules so you get that pace.
2: Now, that's something that football has done in America, especially now we talked about how that's become a clinic kind of sport that you do. They play seven on seven. You do clinics, you go to things like that. It seems to me like something like that because it sounds like, well, that's not the real game of baseball. No. But what it does do is the one thing that's really hard to get Little League to do is it builds a skill set, but it still does it in a fun way that doesn't drag like a full blown game does.
7: Yeah, that's really smart. I should look into that. I I don't know that much about football, but um, yeah, that seems like they've and they're kind of forced to, I guess, because the the the, the grown up game is, is so insane. So you need to modify it. But yeah, I mean, I'm all I'm all for just making up stuff that uh, works in the moment, um, and not trying to, you know, be too traditionalist. Because eventually, if they're good, they'll they'll be able to play at the higher level in the real game too.
2: Yeah, John W. Miller joining us. Now, uh, you have one suggestion that I think is a great suggestion, but let's be honest, baseball can be a little stodgy. They can be a little traditionalist. They can be a little slow to change. But I think you have a good suggestion here. You talk about the coaches at the Little League level. It's set in stone that they're not to be paid, but this is something that should probably be changed because, and you had a great line in there, like, well, you don't expect free violin lessons. Why would you expect free baseball lessons? Should they, should they have some kind of a standardization of coaching?
7: Well, um, yes. Uh it seems like it, it's gonna be hard to fix this problem if you don't admit that your average parent, with all due respect, is um probably not a qualified baseball or softball coach. And, and by the way, when I say baseball, I include softball and I, I include girls, girls' sports. So um uh there should be a middle ground between uh, a private club where somebody's making you know, and there are club owners, by the way, who make hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so there should be, should be a middle ground between the, the volunteer parent who knows nothing about the sport and then the private club where um, it's, you know, three or $4,000 to play. Um, and so I think it would be reasonable to have, you know, a fee that would be, you know, say $300, um, which is manageable for almost all families if, if you know, in the broads per year in broad sense. And then uh, paying coaches something and so then you can get some qualified people and, and you can demand a kind of performance and demand a kind of pace and de- demand a standard of, of, of fun and, and excitement that. Um, you don't get if it's a, a parent who does not know what they're doing and just standing there and, and you know it drives me crazy when I see a, a dad standing at home plate hitting a ball to one kid at a time uh, and while eight kids just stand there, <laughs> so I, I, I bring up the, the European kind of club model where it's often um, a public field or uh, kind of a public structure, but you're, you're paying the, the, the coaches and, and the, the fee is somewhere between the, the Little League, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks, and then the private club, three or 4,000.
2: All right. One of the things we always appreciate about you is you find these great human interest stories. Give me a couple that you found writing about this, about baseball. Give me one or two of the great individual people that you met that really bring this to life.
7: So I, I, I mentioned Nelson Cooper, who's a um, an African American man in his 20s, who when he moved to Pittsburgh, was disappointed not to find baseball, and so he started out with a group of kids and and just um, running practices and games, and now he has 80 kids playing all kinds of levels, and is sending a kid to to there's um, a kid from that program going to play shortstop at a major college. There's um, you know just a sort of culture and community that he's built around it, and I, I really. Uh, admire that um i interviewed a uh, former major league catcher charlie green for this story and charlie grew up in miami and he told me when he was playing little league he played one game a week and that was the highlight of his week and it wasn't more than that and that guy made it to the major leagues um so you don't need the the all the the bells and whistles sometimes um you know if you love it and you're talented uh you'll, you'll get there eventually
2: all right you coach it yourself tell me one of yours though what just put it on a human level for me. You're a great writer, which is why we always enjoy talking to you, but t- tell us what you get out of something like little league and working with the kids. And I mean, it's a game, it's a sport, you're helping kids. What does it mean to you though?
7: Well, I, I love, um, you know, sort of leading uh, players into a, a place where they can play really well without, you know, yelling and screaming. I feel like kids usually don't listen that much to to what you're saying, especially in a group. So it's all about setting up a structure where they're figuring it out for themselves by playing, and then you have to make adjustments. But ultimately, they have to learn by doing. I do try to get um, you know boys talk about their feelings essentially uh, in a way that maybe has not been presented in them before. One example: there was a game a few years ago where we had scored uh, four runs in the in the top of the sixth sixth in the six inning game to take like a three run lead, and then we gave up four. To lose the game in the bottom of the six, and everybody was completely devastated, and everybody was just sitting there, um, just you know, crying. And it was you know, they, they were ten. It was a really crushing loss. In the next practice, I sat everybody down and I said, "Well, let's talk about what you were feeling in that moment." And, and I imagine that uh, the feelings you have could be shame, and I explained what that meant, or anger because you're mad, or pride because you came back, um, or you know, sadness. And I explained what all those feelings meant and, and they kind of took it all. In. And then I went around and had them say, which of those feelings they identified with? And one of the kids goes, coach, I felt all of those. <laughs> and so, yeah, just the, the, you know, I'm not there to, to lecture people about, you know, big, heavy stuff. But when the moment comes up like that, then you have their attention and they, you can kind of help them connect. Because I remember as a, as a kid, you know, just feeling very angry whenever I failed and baseball is a lot of failure and getting really angry and, and mad and, and not knowing what to do. And, and I, you know, wishing I had, well, in hindsight, I wish I had a, a coach who had sort of explained how you cope with that because baseball is a sport where it can just be excruciating. You're by yourself. You fail. Everybody's looking at you. Um, and so, yeah, it's a chance for a coach to, to kind of uh, you know, use that moment to, to help somebody you know, grow up a little bit.
2: Yeah. John W. Miller love talking to you, my friend. He's got two great pieces. On This topic out in America Magazine, how America sold out Little League Baseball is one of them. Nine ways to get kids to fall in love with baseball again is the other one. We will be linking to both of them in the show notes. You, man, you, my friend, have a lot of irons in the fire, though. Let folks know what you have going on. You, we've had you on before about Moundsville. Folks can still go find that at pbs.org. Uh, let folks know what you're doing in your social media so they can keep up with you.
7: Uh, so yeah, I, my Twitter handle is uh, Journalist. Um, I uh, write a column for America every couple weeks. Um, I'm working on a book project about baseball, which I, I can't detail yet, but it's about baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at different coaching jobs in Pittsburgh. So keeping busy and uh, yeah, enjoying the kind of the interest in, the, in this story because I, I didn't expect it would have this much interest, but people really care about baseball. So it's fun to...
2: As you're well aware, I'm sure, because you teach students, uh, a lot of people don't really pay attention to economics, but one (laughs) economic number they always pay attention to. You just mentioned it. When they consume goods, when they have to pay for goods, that means inflation, that means gas prices. Those are the two things that consistently break through. Uh, Just turn the noise down for us for a minute. What are you looking at when you look at the buzzwords of inflation and gas prices in the social media realm or the news realm? What are you looking at and what are you trying to tell people like, okay, that's, that's the term and yes, this is happening, but here's what we actually need to be dealing with.
8: Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation right now. Everyone's feeling it in lots of different ways. Uh, when you see a number such as the consumer price index, which is the most commonly used measure of inflation that, that is used uh, out there, both in the media and often by economists as well, uh, you know, a number like that I think is is useful as a as a first cut at, you know, how are things right now? How might inflation now compared to a year ago, or two years ago, or ten years ago? Uh, but I think it's always useful to kind of drill down into that number and to see what what's causing it, right? So if the price of you know we say that the, the consumer price index is up eight and a half percent or so over the past year, you know what does that mean? Does that mean everything's up eight and a half percent? Well, no, it does not. Uh, some things are up more than that, right? If you look at the price of a lot of different kinds of meat, they're up fifteen to twenty percent. Uh, But other things might be going up not quite as fast. So if we're thinking about how does inflation affect a typical person or a typical household, uh, we need to know what sorts of things uh, is that household consuming. And everyone doesn't have the same consumption pattern, right? If we look at, say, you know, my industry, college tuition, right? This is a number people follow a lot. Uh, Well, most people aren't paying college tuition for, you know, 40 years, right? People are paying college tuition, for five or six years, or if they go to grad school, maybe up to 10 years, they might be paying off the student loans from those, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, But for most people, you know, what happened to the price of college tuition last month is not really relevant to to their budget, right? So we wanna know what sorts of numbers are relevant. Uh, Certainly the price of housing is relevant, right? For most households, this is gonna be 20, 30, or 40% of their budget's gonna go to housing. Again, housing is so varied across this country, both in how much it costs, and how much it's increasing, right? Some, some markets are really hot now and prices might be up 40 or 50% compared to before the pandemic. Others have seen more mild increases, uh, but we wanna know how is that affecting people's budgets? How does that relate to, importantly, how much have their wages gone up? This is the other important thing to remember about inflation is that, well, yes, prices are going up, but if your wages are going up just as much, it's not as much of a, of a, of a burden on you. Uh, but if your wages aren't going up as fast as inflation, that's what really matters to you, right? I mean, let's say inflation was 100% every year. Now, that would seem crazy and a totally different reality from where we are now. But if your wages were going up 200% every year, uh, for you as a worker who's, who's seeing those wage increases, 100% inflation is no big deal if your wages are doing better than that. But even at just, you know, a mild rate of inflation, 5%, uh, if your wages are only going up 1%, then that really does hurt you. So we need to compare these two things. And we need to think about how does it uh, look for whatever type of household we want to analyze, whether it's, you know, millennials, they're just kind of getting into the workforce, buying their first home, whether it's the boomers who are just getting into retirement or the next generation, Gen Z or whatever we're going to eventually call them, you know, that are just graduating from college. You know, I teach college and, and we just had our graduation on Saturday and you've got a couple thousand kids that are now being kind of dumped into the workforce. You know, how are they going to do? Yeah, we want to know all the prices that matter to each of those different types of of households is very different. So one number like the CPI is is a useful one to look at, but it should never be kind of the final word of what's going on with inflation.
2: Yeah. And another one of those numbers, uh, Dr. Jeremy Horvindal, an economist joining us on Herndtel, another one of those numbers that it gets a lot of play in the media, but it affects people greatly. It really helps some folks. It's really going to hurt other folks. Uh, Talk about interest rates for just a second, because that's a number... Some people are going to love that it's going up. I know a lot of economists have been almost screaming that it needs to go up, but that also greatly affects a lot of people in very, very real day-to-day, almost week-to-week, every paycheck kind of ways, doesn't it?
8: Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about interest rates, we always have to realize, just like prices, there are lots of different interest rates, right? So there's an interest rate uh, that you might earn from a savings account, and that's very low today. There's interest rates you're going to pay, such as an interest rate, uh, on buying a new house, right? If you buy a new house today, the interest rate you're gonna pay is very much higher than it would have been if you bought a house a year ago. Uh, but there's also interest rates uh, that the Federal Reserve Bank is gonna loan money to banks at sometimes on a very short term basis. Uh, so that's, that's actually a key interest rate, what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing uh, with the interest rate that they are going to be setting in markets for banks essentially lending money to each other. As that interest rate changes, as they increase that interest rate, that's going to have effects that are going to go across the economy, right? So as the Fed starts raising interest rates that they set, that's going to affect things like mortgage rates, and it's going to affect things like how much you're going to be paid on a savings account. Um, So we need to think about, you know, why is the Fed doing this, right? And as you said, why are some economists finally cheering that they're doing this? Uh, The reason for that is one of the main policy tools the Federal Reserve Bank has to get inflation down, now that inflation is kind of out of control, uh, is to raise that interest rate. That's one of the main ways they have of impacting the economy. Uh, it's not the only way they have, and there's there's other things Congress could potentially do. But as far as the Federal Reserve Bank, that's the main thing they're going to do uh, to try to both, you know, when you're in a slow economy, they're going to lower that interest rate to try to speed up the economy in a sense. Uh, but when prices start going up, they're going to then raise that interest rate to try to slow down the rate of money growth, which then should slow down uh, how much prices are going up. Uh, but there's it's a very you know kind of challenging thing to do. There's a kind of a long lag between when they change interest rates and when it'll actually affect prices. It's not an instantaneous thing, even though it might instantaneously affect mortgage rates. Um, so these two things, you know you mentioned interest rates, it's very much connected to the prices we were just talking about earlier.
2: Yeah, talking to Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, an economist out at the University of Central Arkansas in beautiful Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to drill down on one of those prices, gas prices, and some things that have been going on both in the administrative and in the social uh, discussion field about how those things work. Also want to talk to him about those college kids getting ready to come out because we do that every year and we don't talk about them enough. More economics with our friend, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl right after this on Her tip. You go like bomb. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. We are talking economics. Our friend Dr. Jeremy Horvendahl is going to explain some of this big number, big mass stuff to me, like I'm five, so even I can understand it. Uh, here's one that folks get wrong a lot, even though they're invested in it, because it hits them directly daily. Gas prices. You've been doing some writing about this in Real Clear uh, Policy. Real quick, though, just so we have our nomenclature right. We talk about it, but break it down. What actually affects gas prices? Why is that what we call a lagging indicator? No, it doesn't. Just what happened today doesn't show up at the pump tomorrow. This is stuff from six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago. Just real quick in a nutshell so that we have the right terminology. What is gas prices actually reflecting?
8: Yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like, where does this number come from? We see it at the pump, right? We don't, and not just at the pump, we see it as we drive by a gas station, right? It's posted everywhere, right? So everyone's very keenly aware of this and it certainly affects people's budgets. Um, you know, economists, of course, love to talk about supply and demand, right? And I think that both of those factors are important here. Uh, number one is there is coming out of the pandemic, as, as most countries are now, uh, there's a huge increase in demand for, All sorts of things, but especially for traveling, right? Both by car, uh, by airplane. uh, And those are two industries which are going to be purchasing a lot of gasoline. It's necessary for them uh, to uh, have those uh, moving forward, of course. So, what that means is that part of what's going on uh, is that people are just wanting to buy a lot more. But that's also hitting up to the other half of it that economists like to talk about, and that is the supply, right? So, there's the supply of gasoline, uh, which is certainly being affected by the events in Ukraine, uh, as well as countries reacting to that, to that war by uh, either embargoing Russian imports or other things related to that. So that's certainly a part of it. But gas prices had been going up uh, long before that began, uh, going up throughout most of, of last year of 2021. Uh, so what other factors might there be? And here's where I think the the, the essay you mentioned I wrote for Real Clear Policy really I tried to explain this in in, in a pretty simple way, uh, is that, you know, when you have this increase in demand, uh, what we would normally expect for for most markets is an increase in supply, right? As people demand more, the price goes up, and then there should be more oil put on the market, which eventually turns into more gasoline, and the prices then should come down, which get back to some sort of equilibrium uh, as that happens. But this doesn't happen instantaneously, right? You can't instantly just suddenly find more oil or, or create more gasoline. There's a long production process that's involved in both extracting the oil, finding new oil. Certainly when the price of oil goes up, uh, there are reserves of oil that weren't profitable to extract before that now are. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a time lag. So what's been kind of building up in the you know past year as we've been coming out of, of the pandemic in the U.S. And, and other countries are as well, is that We've had a big increase in demand, uh, but the the supply side takes a long time to catch up. And then in the middle of that is when you have the Ukraine war coming on, uh, coming online, and then that just kind of really just just topples it over, right? There's uh wherever we'd be getting the new supply from. There's now just less oil available in the entire global market, and so that just really uh, then kind of you know right in February and March prices just started skyrocketing, right? I think. In a few weeks, prices at the pump went up by a dollar a gallon, and it was just a really dramatic increase in a short amount of time. But that was the buildup of a lot of things which have been happening in this very weird economy we have right now, post pandemic or kind of still in the pandemic. That uh, that that all that's kind of coming together, and then consumers end up seeing it at the pump, right? So I think maybe next we'll talk about you know what is there anything we can do about that, right? There's a lot of a lot of people suggesting things we can do, but that's that's kind of the, the basics of you know what's what I think is going on with that market right
2: now. Yeah. And you start talking about things like price control. We've seen some op-eds. We see some talking heads discussing it. We've even heard it from some of the White House staff folks. Um, Not in that terminology, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about manipulating the price. Here's the problem. Uh, We've seen this movie. We know about the gas shortages in the 70s. That got hung around Carter's neck. But the part of that story folks don't talk about is a lot of the mess that Carter was dealing with was actually Nixon instituted price controls on a whole bunch of stuff before him in the 60s. We have a history of this in the United States of America with price controls. You're the economist. You explain it to me. That history is not a good one, correct?
8: Yeah, that's right. So like you said, there have been some people that have been saying that, well, one thing we could do perhaps in some markets is institute price controls of various sorts to try to bring down certain prices like gasoline. Uh, The problem with that is that doesn't solve any of the problems. So all the problems I mentioned that are causing prices to go up, the price control doesn't solve any of those problems. So if we were to put in a, you know, Congress were to wake up today and pass a law saying that the most you can charge for gasoline is whatever it was a year ago. Right. Realizing different markets are different prices. Arkansas is different from California. Uh, But, uh, you know, if Congress said you got to charge the prices that existed a year ago, what would that mean? Well, none of the underlying reality has changed about more people wanting gasoline, about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what you're essentially doing is trying to mask the problem. But what that then creates is an additional problem, uh, which is, like you mentioned, the 70s, you get shortages of goods like gasoline, uh, meaning that there just is not enough available. Uh, what that price rising does, right, An important part of prices rising from an economist's perspective, is to make it so that Uh, people are going to use less where they can. Now, of course, we can never cut back 100%, but use less where we can. Um, And it's going to try to get more oil on the market. Uh, If you put a cap on that, whether it's the retail price of gasoline, whether it's the price of oil, what that means is you're going to screw up the market trying to react to this, right? You're not going to tell consumers to stop using it, which is what the higher price tells consumers to do. And you're not going to encourage more producers to put more oil or gasoline on the market And you're going to create this additional problem of shortages, uh, which would mean what we would see at the pump is not high prices, but what we would see is long lines. We would see people lined up uh, because there's stations run out of gasoline and you don't want to not have gasoline. I mean, imagine today, you know, the challenge with electric cars is doing a cross-country trip, right? For short trips, electric cars are actually really good. But am I going to find a charging station if I'm trying to do a 400-mile trip? Uh, If you have shortages of gasoline, it's actually the same problem.
2: Yeah, and we're seeing it now. Uh, Jin Young-Kwak is joining us down from Australia. Uh, We're seeing this a little bit out of the Russia situation where they're getting sanctioned. Uh, What happens with these autocratic dictatorial regimes is because of the corruption, because it's a dictatorship, it, it stifles innovation. It stifles creative freedom. So somewhere like Russia, we, we found out now once they start putting sanctions on, you know, the system collapses pretty quickly because it's all cronyism. It's not really a bottom up innovative society. Uh, how much does government pressure or a dictatorial pressure in these cases uh, talk about how that affects wealth generation? Because it'll affect a lot of wealth for a very, very small amount of people. But it's because the system is just funneling money. It's not actually generating wealth in the way like an American does or like uh, the England and Europe of the last century did. These places where we've seen great uh, Japan of the last 60, 70 years, Germany post-World War II, these places that really explode in economic growth and economic freedom. uh, You're not getting that in a dictatorship or an autocratic society because you just can't, can you?
9: No, he just can't. And I think a really good example is China. Um, in the Mao Zedong era, there was a cultural um, uh, leap, and um, it actually ended in um, a, a, a huge massacre of innocent lives, and that's because of dictatorship. So um, China only started to become um, an... Uh, uh, become an economic powerhouse when they started embracing um, parts of capitalism. And who knows how much they can achieve if they fully embrace um, the free market. But, um, but, uh, but in recent news, we can see that um, the current uh, president, Xi Jinping, he is looking to tighten reins, um, to he's hunting down on the, the wealthy, the affluent. And I think it's only a matter of time before we see China experiencing what they experienced um, during Mao Zedong's era.
2: Now, the thing with China is they've got a built in advantage on the world economic stage that's letting them kind of be the exception to the rule about that is because they have a workforce of three quarters of a billion people. They have a workforce of 750,000, 750 million people, excuse me that are, for all extensive purposes, pretty much under government control. They can control where they work, where they put their industry, these things. And that has been the real secret to the economic might of China. And I don't think people talk about it that a lot of it's just a sheer math problem of like, hey, we've got the biggest workforce in the world, and we also have complete and total control of that workforce.
9: Yes, and um, it is it is it is simply quite... Um I think China itself is a very interesting topic, um, but at the same time, I do think that uh, if, uh, if, 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 China, if the president of China were to um, uh, carry out even more restrictive policies, it will, um, the, popu- the, the, sheer, the sheer mass of the country will not be able to help um, the economic progress. Um, and I think we can see that from history um, during Mao Zedong's era, there were, there were a lot of people as well, but um, there, they were still living in poverty. And um, you can see, you can um, when you look up uh, a lot of people's um, uh, people, when you, when, you look, when you look up people who have survived the cultural revolution, you will find that um, you will find that they have learned to embrace capitalism in Western countries and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that uh that china is is taking a step towards capitalism because they understand that um it's only a matter of time before um, things go back to the way they were
2: yeah talking to our friend quack over in australia uh why is it i know we talk about the human rights issues china has currently today and we understand that their economic might is buying their excuses and, ex- and uh, enabling them to do that because people don't want to, you know, they don't want to break up the cash cow that China is. Why isn't something you talked about the Cultural Revolution? Uh, the Great Leap Forward is quite possibly the greatest single human caused disaster and extinction of people and life in the history of the world. And we don't really talk about it that much. I know China censors that a lot of it, but you're just talking about 20, 25 million people starving to death, basically on purpose. Why do you think that's not more in our collective consciousness as the world, especially in the West, where we're usually pretty good with stuff like human rights, but we just never talk about the Great Leap Forward? And this is one of the most horrific things in all of human history.
9: I think, uh, I think perhaps a lot of countries, I think a lot of countries don't want to jeopardize their economic ties with um, China. Because they understand that um, even just by the sheer mass of the country, um, it, it'll it, it'll be quite difficult for us to, for any countries to, uh, to address this without uh, you know triggering the, um, triggering China. I I think uh, it was really interesting because I, I read a I've. It was really, it was. I read an interesting article by the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Sin Long, and he was, uh, he he basically gave an in depth um, uh, analysis on um, trade ties between Singapore, the US, and China. And what he really strives for is um, the perfect balance between. not agitating China while maintaining good ties with the states. And I think perhaps a lot of, um, perhaps world, world leaders um, all over the world are trying to do the same thing. Um, and while this does make sense economically, it doesn't do anything to address um, uh, the problems that China faces.
2: Yeah. Talking to our friend Quack from over in Australia. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Hurtel. We're going to continue to talk about poverty and wealth generation, a little economics. Going to take a look at it from the perspective of immigration, two things that are always tied together is economics and immigration. We'll talk about that right after the break on Hurtel. Uh, welcome back to Her Tell. We're having a great talk with our friend uh, Zinyan Quack from down in Australia. She's originally from Singapore, though, and that's kind of where we want to go with this conversation about economics and wealth generation and poverty. Uh, there's just no way to talk about the world economic story and not talk about immigration, uh, especially Western countries. Uh, you're living in Australia, which was a completely immigration other than the Aboriginal peoples heavy immigration. Uh, America, of course, is one of the great immigrant stories in all of human history. Why is it, just for people to understand, because immigration brings certain people's priors and they get their backs up a little bit. Why is immigration and economics so inexorably linked together?
9: I think, um, I think, if when you look back at countries that are incredibly wealthy, you think of Australia, you think of Hong Kong, um, the states, of course, and Singapore, and these countries, uh, these countries are built by these countries. As wealth are created by immigrants by ex- allowing immigrants to come in and be productive. So when so I think the the most common misconception um, of immigration is that um, uh, people strongly believe in the zero sum. Um, Uh, theory but that's not true they believe there's a lot of people who are against immigration believe that um, they believe that once immigrants immigrants come in they're going to take the locals' jobs but they don't Um, and you can see that uh, you can you can you can tell that immigrants in fact boost productivity and economic growth um when you look at example when you look at um, examples of um, businessmen who um, who who come who are, who come from a different country, wanting to open, wanting to start their business in your country. and that's when they bring about new jobs. Um, my favorite example is um, this this founder of a hotpot company from China, um, Heidi Lao. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, he once he made it in China, he decided to migrate to Singapore. So now he's a Singaporean citizen. And while many are not quite receptive to immigrants coming, they cannot deny the fact that um, this businessman coming to Singapore um, drives business to um, Singapore. And uh, it in turn creates jobs for Singaporeans. And this in turn boosts um, productivity, uh, lowers unemployment rate, and keeps us all happy.
2: Yeah, here in the States, because of COVID, we have this really weird economic thing we've been talking about with our economic friends when they come on the program of, we have a really low unemployment rate, and we have a labor shortage, which doesn't make sense in traditional economics. But then part of the story of that is when you go look at the data from the last two and a half years Immigration has pretty much stopped from a dead standstill, some of it from COVID, some of it from other reasons. And boy, howdy, wouldn't you know that those gap numbers almost dead line up with the immigration that stopped. And people, I think, maybe didn't realize that, oh, there's certain jobs that the immigrant classes come in and they fill these jobs and just nobody else is doing them. That really was a thing. And when COVID hit, all of a sudden people found that out.
9: Uh, there's that is an unfortunate reality i think um i think the the states uh i think i think the states was once um a vibrant immigr uh, place for uh, was i think the states was once very um open to immigration, but that's not the case anymore and it's the same in Australia there are a lot of um policies regarding immigration that deter that deter um, that really deter immigrants, foreign workers from, bring, from being product, productive. And um, I think an example from Australia is that at one point, um, uh, because of COVID, the Australian borders were not um, uh, open to those on bridging visas. And bridging visas is a type of visa that you, you receive when you've applied for a work visa in Australia. So because a lot of these um, work visa applications have not been approved. A lot of people were um, working, in, working in Australia under a bridging visa, and because of the COVID, they went home. And um, when the government uh, didn't allow these people to come back in, um, they they saw uh, this they this, they witnessed the disastrous um, uh, outcome, which is that they didn't realize um, the aged care sector actually comprised mainly of um, foreign workers. So when this happened, um, the the aged care sector um, uh, lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of its um, staff and employees, and um, this resulted in deaths that could have been prevented, but because of the government's um, rigid um, immigration policies, uh, I think we're beginning to see the economic consequences.
2: Why do people, talking to our friend Quack, um, people just talk about immigrations with like borders and people coming and going, really the conversation with immigration, especially legal immigration, we're not talking about illegal immigration, which everybody agrees that you shouldn't have that, you have to have you know standards, you got to have... A voice. But when you're talking legal immigration, the part that has to be cohesive is some kind of a program, whether it's a visa program, a green card program, a sponsorship program, however you're going to do it, they have to have jobs and they have to have uh, inroads into the economy or the immigration is not going to work properly as far as economic development goes. You have countries like Australia, which are extremely restrictive with their visas. Uh, The EU is getting very restricted with their visas. We noticed the the problem with the refugees with Ukrainians is they're arguing over whether or not, you know, do they get a 90 day work permit or do they get a two year work exemption? You know, things like that's the discussion you have. Why in people's minds do they not put those two things together when really that should be the conversation when you're talking about legal immigration of not just the numbers you're letting in, but who you're letting in, which kind of skilled labor, which kind of skilled professionals. And how to get them into the workforce in a permanent way and fast track that process, because that's really what determines whether or not immigration is successful or not more than the other factors, doesn't it? Um,
9: I think there are two possibilities. I think when policymakers uh, come up with uh, immigration policies that do not account for short term, medium term, long term effects, um, you can you can you can wonder to yourself, I think. Actually that short-sighted, or do they simply just not want immigration? I think that's the biggest question. And we'll never know because, well, we're not the governments, but I think that is a question that a lot of people need to think about. Governments usually, government policies are usually reflective of um, their audience, which is us, the citizens so is it could be it could be due to um, general consensus in this, in the public or it could be it could just be like a big conspiracy i think that's that's a really really big topic
2: Since we're talking prices, let's talk supply side for just a second. I was sitting behind a train yesterday. I was watching all those containers go by, the double stacked on the train. Um, We talked a lot about supply side stuff. We talked about a, a supply side inflationary curve back during the pandemic. We're moved on from that a little bit. What's the data saying about that? Is that lingering into what's going on now or did it wash out? And now we're dealing with more of the oncoming traffic, as you said, as opposed to the rear ending part.
10: So we still have supply chain issues that are still driving up some of these, these the challenges. We can still see that the price of a lumber is exceedingly elevated. And we know the price of some stuff coming from Asia is still elevated and we still have backlogs. So, you know, uh, the data that we're seeing is showing that those effects are are, are mediating. They're, they're getting, you know, less bad over time, but they're not coming down as fast as we would hope. And this is part of the problem uh, and as we want. And part of it is because yeah, this isn't, you know, COVID was an international event. And as much as we want to criticize the US res policy response under both Trump and Biden, um, and sort of also the sort of the, the response of the American public, um, compared to uh, a lot of other countries in the world, particularly in Asia, um, some of the Asian countries, some Asian countries did great. But some of the Asian countries where we get a lot of our imports from, uh, not so great. Uh, take up of vaccines is not as good as what we have here. So
2: so another it's getting gra- better, another it's, getting better.
10: it's getting better, but it's getting better, slower than we would expect. Much like the cold that I had took a lot longer than I wanted for it to, for me to get over it.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I had a fence quoted for my backyard and they won't even quote you wood fencing right now. They said, nobody can afford it anyway, and it would take us too long to get it. So we don't even bother quoting it right now. That's how bad the wood is.
10: I, I'm trying to build an addition, a, 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 an ADU accessory dwelling unit um, on, on my property. Uh, And, you know, we're having the architect drop the plans now. Um, I'm not anticipating starting construction on that until maybe mid next year.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, Talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. uh, Let's talk about one other item you kind of you mentioned in there and kind of skirted by it for just a second, though. Inflation and prices Everybody thinks they're necessarily coupled together, but that's not exactly the truth. They're not exactly dead set together. Talk about the relationship there with the prices a consumer sees on the shelves and inflation because there is some lag there. There's some waves to those sorts of things. Talk about that because everybody just assumes, well, inflation prices are linked together. They go up and they go up. That's not exactly it's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it?
10: Well, yeah. I think the nuance is it depends on what type of uh, U.S. household you are. Um, if you're a household that owns your home on a fixed rate mortgage, property price increase, property price you know, appreciation, inflation, rent inflation doesn't really affect you, right? And that's a huge part of your budget. Now, if you're a renter or you're someone trying to buy and you have to buy because maybe you have to move to a city because you got a job there, right? That's going to weigh pretty heavily on you. That's going to be a pretty big impact on your budget. Um, if you're again, like we saw this for a long time, we talked about the used car market. If you were someone who couldn't afford a new car and you need to buy a used car, you were paying a lot of money for that. Um, if you're someone whose household consumes lots of energy, uh, maybe you have a lot of little rug rats running around. Um, you, are you're, you're subject to a lot more inflation than say, uh, a, uh, a childless couple or, you know, a single person living at home or, or just a couple with one kid, you know? Um, so the the these these price changes affect people differently. You know, it also depends on where you shop. Like certain retailers are going to see higher price increases than others because of how they source their supply chains. So you know, if you shop at Costco, maybe it's uh, when you're in that demographic, you're you're not so affected. And I think that's sort of you know where we might lose track as as policymakers up here in D.C. is we're in a particular kind of bubble. Most of us are homeowners. Most of us do buy from Costco. You know, most of us are fairly insulated from a lot of the costs that uh, a lot of Americans outside of these big cities uh, are dealing with. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I understand, you know, why there's some some angst there and why there's desire to bring that back down. You know, again, the trade-off was: did you want to be working, right, and have a job and not be out of work, or do we want to face these high prices i would take the higher prices as as a, as a choice every day over over leaving people long-term unemployed and just i think that destroys families far more than you know what i hope is you know maybe another year of dealing with price changes that are coming down but still elevated and maybe we get back to normal next year right yeah. If that's the choice that, that I'm, I'm happy with the temporary pain there
2: yeah jericho hill but, our economist friend uh, breaking this down so even I can understand it. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on gotcha. Hurtel. We'll get into more of this economic stuff. We'll get into the politics of it. It is an election year. We're going to ask him a little bit of rapid fire, see what an economist thinks about some of the campaign lingo that we're going to be hearing over the next couple of months. Jericho Hill on Hurtel right after Hi, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, uh, in the fancy-dancy graphic print t-shirt, because that's what all the economists are wearing these days. Uh, Let me Jer- bust
10: out my tariff shirt sometime that we got uh, Senator Orrin Hatch to wear. Scott <laughs> Lenincon would love it.
2: Yeah, the late, the late Senator Orrin Hatch, God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. I uh, don't think <laughs> his replacement will be nearly as fun. No, <laughs> um, uh, let's let's talk economy for just a second. This is an election year, so I want to ask you a couple things. things. No. You're the economist and I'm not. I just want to I'm going to throw you some of the buzzwords we're going to hear, because let's be honest, this is the eighth or ninth most important election of my lifetime uh, to be followed oh by God. the 10th most important election of the lifetime. Next week, we hear the exact same I agree with
10: you on that. I am with you 100 percent.
2: Yeah, we hear the same economic terminology every election so i'm just going to ask you how they land with you when you hear them on a campaign ad um you're there in northern virginia so i'm sure your airwaves are all campaign commercials right now it's pretty brutal where i'm at um so let's hit a couple of these real quick Um, but just
10: be glad you're not in
8: georgia
2: uh we uh, our friend uh, Jason Downey just had him on the program talking oh. about it and he said you know there is nothing but campaign ads right now i was just talking to a radio buddy he was like yeah i hate it he's like all my commercials on the radio station but it's paying the bills we paid the whole quarter off in one ad by thank you club for growth um <laughs> anyway uh let's hit some of these items okay when you hear a campaign talk about lower taxes how does that hit your economic ears because a congressman a senator even a governor they don't really have a whole lot of say over tax policy, but each and every one of them always campaign on tax policy. How does it hit your economic ears when you hear that on a commercial?
10: They can campaign on what their state and local locality control, which is typically a sales tax or a property tax, right? Some states have income taxes, but not very many. Um, you know, I would say um, we're dealing with inflation right now. So sort of the last thing we need to really do is to uh, do a, a, a A tax decrease, which will put more money uh, back into the economy, at a time we're trying to take money out of the economy and slow price growth. Uh, You know, I I get it. I get wanting to to have lower taxes for folks, especially folks that might be hurting. But right, that could that could backfire. That could send inflation up. But then again, maybe these governors don't care about that because the inflation is Biden's problem. It's that's not the governor's problem.
2: Yeah. Speaking of inflation, every election I've ever had, it is. Uh, Reaganomics, the Clinton economy, the Bush economy, the Bush recession, uh, the Obama recession. You see where I'm going with this. It's always like this. The Trump tax Biden cuts, inflation. whatever. So now we're right. going to deal with the Biden economy, the Biden inflation. When you hear that terminology, because we hear it every election year, whoever's in the chair, they get blamed for the economy. How does that hit your economic years?
10: Um, a lot of what we're dealing with are were things outside of our control in the in the country because we were dealing with a, you know, worldwide pandemic. So it's somewhat unfair to pin it all on, on Biden's policies, but it's also fair to pin a bit of it on him. And I think, you know, especially like, you know, hey, they they wanted to get a lot of money they right into the economy to basically make sure the unemployment got back uh, to low levels that that folks that we had. Um, and that's the consequence. And so they made policy choices that that created the inflation too, that helped bring it along. So they deserve part of the, the blame on this. Not all of it, but but part of it. But hey, that's the breaks of being the guy in
2: charge. Another one that's the brakes of the guy in charge because it is a lagging indicator, no matter what anybody else tells you about gas prices. Uh, now, obviously, there's a, there's a caveat to this one because the president campaigned on reducing fossil fuels. That means they reduce output, they reduce planning. So that some of that is on him, but there was the war on Ukraine. That's going to crack things up. When you hear about gas prices and the, we're going to fix the gas prices, and the Biden did that stickers on all the gas pumps I keep seeing all over the place. How does that hit your economic years?
0: I
10: mean, look, this is sort of the two faced nature of politics, right? You said Biden, you know, was, you know, campaigning for cleaner energy. He was to to sort of reduce our reliance on gas powered cars and whatnot, and bring in more electrified vehicles. That clearly was a policy choice. That would imply that we'd have less capacity for for gas, and that would be a, a, an upward pressure on prices. And then, you know, they also want to release a bunch of oil barrels from a strategic reserve to lessen that it sort of goes against the um, policy choice. Again, like maybe it's bad politics, but, you know, when you and I talk, like I just feel like owning what the what what your goal is and stating clearly what the trade-offs are to that you're going to get to the goal. So, hey, we want cleaner vehicles. We want a cleaner environment. Uh, we want to reduce our reliance on gas. We want to lose our reliance on Russian energy good goals guess what there are consequences to that yeah. I, again like you know i maybe maybe you know two-thirds you know world phenomenal one-third biden's to blame you know like he's got to own some of it yeah i just i just wish that we could be more honest about this
2: yeah here's one that we need to be more honest about that we talk about every single time i'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs now i always would love for one enterprising reporter to ask them When they're going to bring back tooling and ball bearings because you're not having any manufacturing in the country until we bring those two things back. And we don't do those in America anymore because you got to have that to have the bigger manufacturing. But when you hear manufacturing, that's a big thing in economics because of the indicators for it. It's something that America has declined in doing, and we import it more than we export it. How do you hear we're going to bring back those manufacturing jobs?
10: I mean, look, the developed world has moved those jobs to the developing world. That uh, was a choice set made by pretty much every country. Um, the leading edge industries are not manufacturing and will not be, those are not manufacturers, not the driver of growth anymore. It used to be, but the world and the economy changed. I would hope that our policymakers makers, wanna keep the US focused on delivering those drivers of economic growth to produce jobs, both high-skill and low-skill down the line you know, in these emerging technologies, you know, in these emerging you know industries, that's where we, that would be good policy. So, like, I I, I get for the industrial workers in say West Virginia, right? You do you have you know coal? We're not coal's not coming back. Like, you know, auto manufacturing to like what it was in the '80s is not coming back. And politicians should just simply be honest about that, and we should work to sort of think about how do we shift our job training how do we shift our educational system to produce workers that'll thrive in that new economy and thinking 10 20 years down the road look i 20 years ago i was working i mean you had the you had you know your guests from the from the from the board of education i was a student member of the board of regents of the state of georgia i was pushing for policies that would increase funding for our community colleges and small local colleges in Georgia, because their infrastructure, their, what they had available in the classrooms for, for students to learn was just paltry. And that's where a lot of our you know, sort of um, um, skilled jobs, not necessarily college educated, but skilled trade jobs um, and, and, and whatnot, were where, you know, where folks would go to get their, 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 their associate's degree or their, their training, or their tradesmanship, you know, and we weren't funding that and and we should. So so yeah, let, let's think about what, what the world's going to look like in 10, 20 years, what these emerging technologies are and figure out how to how to get those companies here, how to create them. Let's uh, let's do what we should do. Let's take the waive the visa requirements for all the smart people from Russia to get to, them to leave that country and come over here to the land of opportunity. Let's open up that can of let's open up that that can to to everybody. And let's just bring the bright people over here. Let's bring the energetic and industrial people over and have them start companies, right? Immigrants start companies at rates far higher here in the U.S. than native-born folks do. And those are the folks that we want to have because they're going to create the jobs of the future.
2: Yeah, it's another topic for another day, something we're working on for a future episode. But that labor gap. Hmm, it's almost identical to the drop in immigration over the last two years. Isn't it funny how that works out? Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a future episode. One billion
10: Americans. It unites both left pundits and right pundits.
2: <laughs> yeah. It, let's let's open that can of worm another day, shall we? All right, here a couple more of these real quick, though, because it is campaign season. We hear the same things over and over and over again. Uh, housing is starting to creep into campaign ads. I've actually seen some affordable housing ads. You never used to see those. I'm wow. for it. But the problem here is who makes it affordable, because we all know when the government goes to make something affordable, it usually doesn't really end up being affordable. Uh, let's talk a minute. It's something I know you spend a lot of time thinking and digging into, but I've actually seen a couple campaign ads. They ran one in West Virginia about um, they did a block grant for the whole state to get rid of blighted houses all at once because it makes it a lot cheaper to do, you know, because you yep. pay for 100 houses instead of 10 smart yep. policy, I think. Uh, so credit to them. But I'm actually seeing some housing policies show up in campaign ads. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. How does that hit your economic years?
10: I mean, housing is the single biggest budget item in most families, most families budget. Um, we should focus on that if we want families to, to be better off. So, yes, I do a lot of work locally on trying to help expand housing supply. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You know, here, what we do is we, we like giving homeowners, uh, property owners options uh, I live in an area where um, you can build a single-family house. You can also build a duplex if you want, or a triplex. Um, you can build a tiny home out back. We call that an ADU, or accessory dwelling unit. Uh, you could turn your basement into a grandma, you know, suite, live in an apartment, and rent that out. You know, and those those are options right there that I'm that, are, that I'm saying. Those are options that local governments can can enact. They just require a zoning change, possibly, or just a, a little you know local policy change but the local government doesn't expend any money to do it and local governments are cash strapped other things that i've seen local governments do is they said look um we're not going to tell you how to build this new apartment complex right but if you want to have your if you want to have a six-story complex rather than a four-story complex um we'd like for you to put x number of units and designate them affordable based on our affordability guidelines and then we'll give you the the variance to to build up higher you know like Local governments can't really fund this, right? Um, they have to just basically provide the incentives for folks to do it on their own, um, and so I, I agree with with Andrew. Like, we've had experience of like, you know, look, we we built section eight housing a long time ago in this country, right? And we 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 concentrated low income families into the same area. Uh, and that had uh, consequences that were not good for those low-income families. And now we're seeing a lot more mixed use planning and development, mixed income development, which, which based on the research, you know, has better financial outcomes uh, for those lower income persons, better financial stability, better household stability. So you know, things that we can do for that, but it's not gonna really come from a federal level Right. The federal government can't dictate zoning. That's a local thing. It's gonna have to come from local folks saying, look, we 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 want we want people who have lived in this area to continue to live here, right? And we need to help that make that affordable, give them options. We want to have a diverse set of people, young and old, being able to live here. So we need to have a diverse set of housing options for them, you know, and try to try to work change locally.
2: All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom,
6: all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.